0: Icon, good to be with you today. Uh, We are going to do something a little bit different today. We had planned to start uh, our new series in the Book of Romans, uh, but we're actually going to push that out a week and dedicate this Sunday uh, to talk about what's going on around our country and here in our city uh, around race, uh, especially in the light of the death of George Floyd. So um, I, like many of you on Monday, saw the video emerge of uh, George Floyd's death at the hands of a Minneapolis police officer. And for whatever reason, that video, uh, more than any of the many others that we've seen in these last uh, five to 10 years or so, uh, it shook me. It shook me in a way none of the rest of them have. And so um, I, I began to reach out to some friends, uh, pastor friends of mine who are African-American leading uh, largely black and multi-ethnic churches around our country and began to just ask like, what what is it about this one that's different? And, and there was this shared sense that this was different somehow, that there was an intensity around this that was greater than or di- at least different than many of the others that we have seen. And so um, I I wanna take a moment here today and address this issue. And I want us to do two things um, while, while we're considering this issue today. I want us to think deeply Right? I want us to think deeply about the issue of race and racism in particular, and, and how we uh, can can deal with it in a more comprehensive way. And so in, in moments like this, some, some of the pushback that I hear is, man, we're just gonna talk about it in this moment. So it's, it's just like an event and then it will pass. And, and I would say two things uh, to that first. Um, of course, we're going to talk about race in this moment. And it is right and good that we do. In fact, it's a a normal part of human life that when we experience pain, we address that pain. So if your foot hurts, you attend to your foot in a way that you don't when it's not hurting. This is normal and natural for us to speak to these issues in times of special pain. And so I, I want to acknowledge the deep pain that many of us are experiencing, especially those uh, who are part of the African American community. The deep pain of having to see um, someone who might look like you um, being killed in such a, a, a horrific way. And the fear and uncertainty that that would bring. And so I want to speak to it uh, and call us to think deeply beyond just this moment and and the visceral sense that we have in this moment. But I want us to think deeply about why something like this can happen. But I don't only want us to think deeply. I, I also want us to think rightly about this. And that is really important in a moment like this. I, um, I have probably, if I'm totally honest, have never been more stressed out about a message um, than I have been this week about this message. And part of that is, that I feel like um, there are a, a number of conflicting messages about what we're supposed to say or not say, do or not do. And it is really hard to kind of navigate all that to try to do the right thing and know that there's, there's just nothing we can say and there's nothing we can do that will appease everybody and make everybody happy. And so there, there is a need for us to not just think deeply and go beyond the surface of like racism is bad. Like that, that, that's not enough, like that's obvious. Like we have to go deeper than that. But I also wanna make sure that we're thinking in biblical categories, we're thinking in gospel categories, we're thinking really rightly about this. So before we get into our text, I, I, I wanna say two things. First is, that for those of us who have lived um, on the West Coast for most of our lives, and especially those of us who've grown up in the Pacific Northwest, this might seem like kind of a far away problem. Right? The reality is that our city, Seattle, has less than 7% of its population is African American. And so um, it can seem like a, a problem that's like kind of an out there problem or kind of a, it's from the South or it's in the Midwest or it's in big cities or something. It seems other. But I want us to recognize something. I want us to recognize that the reason why um, something like race might feel like an out there problem or spe- especially troubles in the black community or, or a, a, you know, a police brutality moment like this one seems like such a distant thing is, you know, there's a reason why only 7% of our city is African American. And it's because the Northwest Territory was founded as basically a white utopia. Oregon, in particular, was one of the only states to be included in the Union with a clause in its constitution that basically institutionalized racism. In the the Northwest Territory, people of color were allowed to be here, but they were not allowed to own land, and even into the 1960s. I mean, it can seem like a long time ago when the Northwest Territory was settled, and it was, but even in our city into the 60s and 70s, not that long ago, for some of us in our lifetime, there was institutionalized racism, uh, in, in the sense of housing and laws that prevented people of color from owning homes here. where I mean, not blocks away from where we are filming now. So the reason why there aren't a lot of black people in Seattle is because Seattle created laws that kept black people out. We are literally living in what was founded to be a white utopia. So yeah, sure, the problem may seem a long ways away, but there's a reason for that because the people who founded this place were trying to keep people a long ways away. So that's the first thing, and I want us to recognize that as a significant part of what shapes our city and our experience living in it. The second thing is this. We called ourselves Icon, and we named our church Icon for a reason, Because we believe that um, the fact that we are an image bearer of God is the truest, most foundational thing about us. We always say that icon means four things for us. One, it's our identity. It's the truest thing about us. It supersedes everything else about us. Every other adjective, every other description is secondary to the fact that we are image bearers of God. That's the first thing. Second thing is that we have, in spite of that, never actually lived out that identity fully. Not a single day in our lives have we ever fully imaged God. Therefore, it is our identity, but it is also our telos. It is our end. It is what we yearn for. It is what we move towards. And it is a process in which we move towards it. Third, that the only true image bearer of God is Jesus Christ and that he is our hope. Colossians 1 tells us that he is reconciling all things back to himself, the true one and only image bearer. And lastly, and this is important for us today, that not only is icon, image bearer, my truest identity, but it is also yours. It is also theirs. It is our posture towards our city, is our posture towards the people around us that, that we would see wading through everything else that we would see first and foremost, the people around us as image bearers of God. And that has been central to our vision from day one, and it will always be central to our vision. And that's got a million ramifications, especially for this issue. So here's here's what I want to do. I want us to turn to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter two is one of my favorite sections of scripture. There is a four verse uh, little story here that I think has massive implications for what we're talking about today and for all of our lives. So turn to Galatians chapter two and we'll start in verse 11. Now, some of the backdrop while you're turning there, the backdrop to this moment is racial tension in the church. And um, if you read the New Testament especially, you will see that in just about every single book in the New Testament, um, they address the issue of racial tension in the church. The, the church began as a largely Jewish movement, but it was not long before Gentiles, non-Jews, were being converted to Christianity. And so from the very get-go in the early church, there was racial tension. Because these Gentiles, these Greeks, and as the scriptures sometimes call them, barbarians, um, were were being added to the church. Um, They were walking into a, a set of cultural norms that had been set in place by the Jewish people that their Christian faith had become kind of an extension of their Jewish faith. And in many ways, it was supposed to be, right? Like Jesus was the promised Messiah that generations of Jews had been waiting for. And so in the early days, they were adding Jesus to their Jewish faith and kind of living out the gospel in very, very Jewish ways. Well, the moment that Greeks and other Gentiles start getting saved and joining the church, they walk into what is a very, Jewish context and immediately are are feeling disconnected, they're feeling out of place, they're feeling like there's all kinds of Jewish norms that they don't understand, and they're having to try to figure out what do we have to do and what do we not have to do. And there was one issue in particular that became kind of the tipping point for the early church, and that was circumcision, right? And I think, for pretty obvious reasons, this became a tipping point, right? So the early church wrestled a lot with what parts of the Jewish law were meant to be kept and what were meant to be thrown away. And this issue of circumcision kind of ended up being the the main argument. So that's that's what we see. That's kind of what we're walking into. The church in Galatia is experiencing this kind of ethnic tension, this racial tension. Um, it is primarily a gentile church paul was called to be uh, to reach the gentiles peter had been kind of called to reach the jews and was kind of the pastor to the jewish christians paul the pastor to the gentile christians and this is where it all kind of comes to a head so galatians chapter 2 starting in verse 11 it says but when cephas which is peter uh peter's name when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned." Now, what we're gonna see in a moment is that Peter had been acting hypocritically around this issue of race, right? When it was just Peter and the Gentiles, they were eating together, they were fellowshipping, it was all good. The moment some Jewish leaders came, Peter drew back, right? So in this moment of racial tension, in this moment of hypocrisy, Paul sees Peter acting this way and he confronts him. This is massively important that Paul, looking at Peter, who Peter was, I mean, Peter's the one that Jesus looked at and went, you're the rock upon whom I'm going to build my church. Right? Peter was the first pope. He was the first pastor. He was the head of the church, especially in Jerusalem, but really was revered around the, the Christian world. And when he acted in, in a hypocritical, racist way, Paul went straight to him and confronted him. And I want us to see how he confronted him here in a moment. But I don't want us to miss the, the courage That it took on Paul's part to confront racism in the actions of the most powerful person in the room, right? And it was his conviction in the gospel that drove him to take that risk. And I want us to notice that and to feel empowered by that to do the same in our own lives and in a moment like this. So, verse 12 says, for before certain men came from James, James was one of the pastors of the church in Jerusalem, he was eating with the Gentiles. And I mentioned this before, but in Middle Eastern culture, if you eat with someone, you fellowship with them, you, you make a bond with them. This is intensely not just relational, but, but had a lot to do with uh, trust and acceptance. And this was a big deal for Peter, a Jewish Christian leader, to be eating with the Gentile Christians, and to be doing so in a way that promoted fellowship and acceptance. This is a big deal, and it's a good thing. It says, he was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, those who came from James, when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Now, that sounds terrifying. I totally get that. But This is is the move that Peter makes that Paul is confronting him about. That when it's just Peter and the Gentile Christians, he's with them. They're buddies. They're eating together. He's extending fellowship to them. When the Jewish Christians show up, he pulls back, fearing the circumcision party, fearing these Jewish Christians, and man, that that is a consistent story that I have heard from many of my African American friends. In fact, I was literally on a phone call today with a guy, and I asked him, like, what was a what was an early memory of a moment you had where you realized, like, oh wow, this I, I, I am a black person in a white world, and he told the story of being in his neighborhood. And he had white buddies and black buddies in his neighborhood and he was hanging out with his wife and these were all his friends and they ran together. And then at school, he had a moment where one of his white buddies saw him at school and instead of being friends like they were friends in the neighborhood, he drew back, literally the same language as Peter here, drew back and wouldn't acknowledge him as a friend and just kept kind of hanging out with his white friends. And man, the, the alienation, the rejection, the the feeling of being made an other in that moment is so visceral. I mean, especially when you're a kid in school, but man, even in this moment where where the the Gentile Christians are already feeling insecure about their place in the church, and they finally, man, they're, they're hanging out with Peter, and he is the leader of the church, and then once the Jewish Christians come, they feel, they see him distance himself from them. Man, I can't imagine how alienating that must have felt. To be, to be left alone, to be rejected, to, to break the fellowship that had been built. And Paul sees this. Paul sees this and he calls him out. It says, verse 13, the rest of the Jews who were there, the other Jewish Christians who had been eating with the Gentile Christians, says the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Now, notice what Paul's calling out here. He's going, this is Peter. Peter who has power. Peter who has influence. Peter who is a leader has this moment where he has extended fellowship and and Barnabas and these other uh, Jewish leaders have have followed along with him and they have integrated the Gentile Christians with him and this is really good and then all of a sudden the Jewish Christians show up and Peter steps out and he steps out in all of his leadership, in all of his power, in all of his uh, his influence and all of the other Jewish Christians follow along with him. That, man, when when we make these decisions to pull back, when we make these decisions to uh, allow racism in any form to to seep into our lives, like we cannot underestimate the amount of influence that our courage and our cowardice might have on the people around us. Because, man, people are watching. They're watching. They see. And, and, and by and large, people are not going to go against the trend. It, it, it takes great courage to walk a different way. And so when Peter, who has so much power and so much influence, steps out and draws back, everyone else around him does too. So that even these otherwise solid Christians like Barnabas were led astray by their hypocrisy. Now, Paul sees all of this going on. And, and back to verse 11, he says, I opposed Peter to his face because he stood condemned. Right now, Paul could have very easily in this moment gone to Peter and gone, Peter, you're, you're breaking the rules. You're breaking the racism rule. Don't do this. You're being a hypocrite. Knock it off. Or he could have just kind of let Peter do what he did and be like, hey, you know, Peter's got to do him. That's not really my, it's not really my place to step in. I, I'm just going to do my thing with the Gentiles. God's called me to the Gentiles. I'm going to be faithful with, with the Gentiles. You know, you know, Peter is called to the Jews and, and Jesus made that really clear that he's going to be the, the rock upon whom God's going to build his church and he's doing that in Jerusalem with the Jewish Christians. And hey, who am I to say otherwise? Who am I to step in and, tell, and be God in his life, right? No, Peter, Paul goes, no. I see racism. I see hypocrisy. I see influence that, he, that Peter is having on the people around him, and it's leading them into racism and hypocrisy. So he goes, I, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. It was obvious that he was breaking God's law, but watch how he does it. Verse 14 says, but when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, before them all, they're all in the room together. And Paul comes to Peter and says, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? You're being a hypocrite, Peter. You say that, you know, when your buddies are here, you say, yeah, the Gentiles, they need to be circumcised and they need to follow the kosher laws. They need to do all this stuff. But when they're gone, you live like them. How how dare you tell them one thing and then do another? How dare you kind of speak the rhetoric of a thing and then not back it up? How dare you say, yeah, racism's wrong and then act in racist ways yourself? Or how dare you speak out about this and then not confront racism in your own life or racism around you or prejudice and stereotype and ways in which we in institutionalized and systemic ways keep people away from each other, keep people above each other. How can you do that and at the same time proclaim Christ? In fact, What Paul says here is, when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. That for Paul, this went to the heart of the gospel. That he saw Peter's hypocrisy not just as like, oh yeah, Peter's just being Peter. That's That's just the way he is. Oh yeah, he just says those things, but he doesn't really mean it. Yeah, he makes jokes, but he's a good guy. No, none of that. He goes, no, Peter, you are cutting to the heart of the gospel. You are undoing the very heart of our faith. And you're leading other people astray. You're alienating this group of people and wrongly influencing this group of people. This matters a lot. Now, what Peter was doing was really active and obvious, like he was pulling back and all of that. And, and, and sometimes it's, it's not that obvious. Sometimes it's more subtle. Sometimes it actually might feel like an overreaction for us to step into a situation. But Paul goes, listen, this is a gospel issue. It doesn't get more serious than this. You can't just brush it off of like, oh, that's just how he is. This is just a joke. It's not a big deal. It's it's totally fine. I mean, they probably deserved it. Like none of that. No, you don't understand. This cuts to the heart of the gospel. Now, I I want to expand on this idea for a moment because this is the most important part of this whole thing. That Paul connects Peter's hypocritical racism to the heart of the gospel. I want us to see a a couple of different things. First, he's connecting it to this gospel story of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. This This is the gospel this is the good news that there that god created that there is sin and yet we have a savior jesus christ our lord and he will bring about restoration and, and Paul goes, listen, this issue of racism cuts to the heart of each of those things. And I'm gonna, I wanna, want to go through how, and, and show how it does just that and why this matters so much. But before we do that, I, I also want, um, I want to point out that Paul taking it to the gospel is also a pattern for the way in which we need to engage this issue there are a lot of ways to talk about race these days, and a a lot of inputs and a lot of categories and a lot of things. And, and, And I would say that not only is it important for us to think deeply about racism in all its forms and press down into the nitty gritty of even something so maybe seemingly little as a guy not eating with other people, as a gospel issue. So I want us to press down into the seriousness of it, but I also want us to think rightly about it. And that is that we would think in biblical categories, namely thinking in gospel categories about this issue, not primarily sociological categories. And, and a lot of what I hear these days, a lot of what's going on out there in the kind of larger conversation, especially in the secular conversation about race, it is, it is framed in unbiblical, largely sociological categories that as a Christian, I think are deeply unhelpful. And, and I don't have time to go into all the reasons why they're deeply unhelpful, but I'll just say this as a christian our foundation are the scriptures and the story they tell that's where it begins the only reason i can say racism is wrong is because the scriptures tell me that people are made in the image of god so i can go hey peter's peter's actions were wrong and if someone goes why well, because they, 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 they undermined the gospel. They weren't in step with the truth of the gospel. What does that mean? Well, I, all of the wise land back at God tells me in his word that people are made in the image of God and because of that are worthy of value and inherent dignity. That's the foundation. And, and I build on top of that foundation, but when we have other categories, we are building on a different foundation. We don't have the same denominator, right? So if you can remember back to like elementary school math, I'm in the thick of this with my fifth grader and she's multiplying, you know, fractions and I'm going, okay, I don't really remember how to do that, but I think it had something to do with the denominator. You have to match denominators before you can start to multiply these things, I think, but Here's the point, when we build an understanding of race and racism on things that aren't biblical categories, we end up in places that don't make sense. We, We end up talking about things and building out categories that are ultimately, I think, obscuring the reality of the situation. So as Christians, just as Christians, it is imperative that we begin with these biblical categories just the way Paul did. Paul goes to Peter, confronts him, and goes, listen, dude, you're not living in line with the truth of the gospel. That's the problem. The, The specific way is racism and hypocrisy, but I want you to see how that is kind of getting off the trajectory of the gospel story. So, I want, to, I want to walk through very quickly this creation, fall, redemption, restoration, gospel arc, and show how racism undermines it at every turn. First, creation. I've already mentioned that the foundation for a Christian's understanding of human rights and dignity, and I would add All of Western civilization's understanding of human rights and dignity is founded in Genesis 1.27, telling us that we are made in the image of God. That moment where God stamped us with his image, is the moment of dignity, that everything else that happened after that doesn't change the fact that we are image bearers of God, fully deserving of honor and worth and dignity because of that, not because of what we've done, not because of what we can do, but because of that. So when we act racistly, especially when I see that police officer kill George Floyd, I see a double destruction of the image of God first and and most heinously in the actual destruction of an image bearer of God in the killing of George Floyd. That that, that officer killed that man, destroyed the image of God in that moment. A, a, A man worthy of dignity and value and worth because of his creator. But I also see a second destruction of the image of God in that moment in the, in the officer's um, misappropriation, mismanagement of, and, and absolutely wrongful reflection of the image of God. That he has been given the image of God and been given the calling to reflect who God is and God's character. And when he is there with his knee on the neck of another man, he is in no way reflecting the character of God. And he is doing great damage to that reflection. He is... Absolutely misrepresenting and mischaracterizing the heart and will of God in that moment, and in, in so doing, destroying, crumbling this idea of being image bearers of God. Both men in that moment are marred by this, as is the image of God in them. Second, The story of the gospel is the story that god created all things good and in fact created humanity very good and then things were broken by sin that sin is the problem underneath all problems that sin is at the heart of racism and we just we have to call things what they are that racism is sin hypocrisy is sin. Racism practiced over and over by one group of people against another, in this case, Jew against Gentile, in our case, white against black, is systemic racism, systemic sin. When we talk about institutionalized racism or or, or systemic racism, we are saying that we have built systems and institutions with sin baked into the foundation of them. So it it should be no surprise when we see those institutions and those systems begin to fail and crumble as in that moment we saw the justice system fail that man, George Floyd. It failed him because baked into that system was sin sinful vision for what power is to be, a sinful vision of race, a sinful vision of what that man could do and what he could get away with. I mean, there, there is a sense in which that officer had his knee on George Floyd's neck because he knew he could. And he believed he would get away with it. That, that's institutionalized sin sin baked into the system so we see in that moment the imago day in creation we see sin in the fall that that is at the root of all of these ills of society and then redemption that the story is creation fall redemption And at the center of the redemption, that third act in gospel history, in this gospel arc, at the very center of that is Jesus Christ on the cross, who died and was raised again. That that is the pivot moment. For all of human history, that is the pivot moment for the gospel story that there was perfection and there was sin and then Jesus, his death and resurrection solved that sin problem and began to turn things around. So let me say this. Jesus is the answer to our sin problem. Jesus is the answer to all of our sin problems. Jesus is the answer to to our racism problem. And I'll just say this. If that statement bothers you, if that statement feels trite to you, if that statement feels like I'm I'm skirting the issue because I have said that Jesus is the answer, I, I, I would just, I would beg you to think about what you're thinking. To think about what you're saying in that moment. That Jesus being the solution, that the cross of Jesus Christ and his resurrection from the dead feels like a trite answer to the problem of sin manifesting itself as racism. If that seems trite to you, you may underestimate the power of God to save, to heal, to redeem, to reconcile. If that feels trite to you, you may also be overestimating the power of law and policy and institution to save and heal and redeem and to reconcile. The scriptures are clear. Reconciliation of any kind and most especially maybe racial reconciliation that we long for, that we need so desperately, will be found in Christ and in Christ alone. And so in those moments when we see racial injustice, if our first reach is for policy, if our first reach is for reform, if our first reach is for law, if our first reach is for anything but Jesus, we are saying that those things are more powerful to save, to heal, to redeem, to restore, to reconcile than Jesus. And that is just not the Christian witness. In Colossians 1, 19 and 20, one of the kind of core verse for Icon's vision of what it means to be an image bearer of God, Paul says, For in him, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross that the Christian gospel, that the vision is creation, fall, redemption in Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, it it, it doesn't stop there, but it has to start there. Do you hear me? Reconciliation doesn't stop there. It does start there. Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 says this. He goes, we regard no one according to the flesh. Now, I, I don't have time. I could build a whole sermon on this idea. Paul is saying, listen, All the people out there, they look around at each other and they look around at this world and they see flesh. We don't do that. Because we have been made new by the Spirit, we see the world through gospel eyes. And so if in those moments we are reaching for things of the flesh, law and policy and justice and these kinds of things, we are regarding the world around us the way non-Christians would regard the world around us. Those who do not know of a higher power, a greater strength. Paul goes, we don't do that. through the cross and then he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. This is why I say the work of reconciliation doesn't end at the cross. It begins at the cross. That our first reach has to be for Jesus, the only true reconciler of people. And then it says when we have been reconciled to God, when we have been made new, that the old has passed away, the new has come, then he gives us the the power to, and the calling to be reconcilers the way we've been reconciled. He says, that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you, On behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God for our sake. He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Paul goes, listen, the only chance we have for person and person to be reconciled is if person and person are reconciled to God. God is the reconciler. This is our hope. And and to the degree that we reach for other things, believing that they can reconcile, is the degree to which we don't ultimately trust Christ to be the reconciler. Lastly, the restoration. We have to recognize that the restoration of all things comes at the end. It, It comes in the future. And and what that ought to do is set expectations for us. That what Christ began on the cross continues its work in and through us, but it will not come to completion until the end of time does this mean that we just go, well, you know, Jesus said the poor will always be with us. And so we shouldn't feed the poor. Or we shouldn't deal with that. Like that's just an inevitability. And it's not really till the end that all this comes true. And so, yeah, racism's bad, but it'll never really be gone until the end of all things. No, No, don't be dumb. We just talked about this. The calling that we have is to be reconcilers the way we have been reconciled. But there's also a wisdom and a a humility that we can have to go, listen, I know Christ has a power to reconcile. I know that he's given me the ministry of reconciliation. And so I can call people to be reconciled to God and then to be reconciled to each other. But I also recognize the limits of my ability to rid the world of racism, to rid the world of evil, to rid the world of police brutality that won't come till the end because you and I and all of the tools we have are not powerful enough to restore the world. Only God can do that. This is why the Bible ends with John going, come Lord Jesus. Come Lord Jesus. That is our hope. Now, uh, very quickly, um, I think with messages like this one, we can be left going, yes, I want that, but what do I do? And, and so what, what I want to do is give us five really practical, really quick things that we can be thinking about uh, and, and, and be kind of working towards in our lives, ways in which we can live out the gospel uh, in, in, in consistent ways. One, own your inputs, right? Um, This is something Alona said uh, this week that I thought was really, really helpful. To, To be aware of what we're putting in our mind and putting in our hearts. And oftentimes we think about that simply in the kind of binary of like good things or bad things. But one of the other ways we need to think about that is, are we reading and watching and listening things that express a wide variety of life experiences and cultural experiences? Or are we only um, kind of imbibing the things that are comfortable and and reinforce the things we already want and believe and know, right? The things that we watch and we read and we listen to it shapes the lens through which we see the world. Gosh, every time you travel to a culture that is significantly outside of your own, it's inevitable that you go, wow, I never saw the world this way. It's one of the great beauties of travel to be able to see the world in a different place through different eyes. And so when we cannot travel and we are taking in all kinds of information all the time, thinking about, gosh, am I I reading authors who come from very different perspectives than I do culturally or racially? Am I watching television shows and movies that have non-white people as the hero or the main character of the story? Have I ever ever watched a movie that depicts Asian culture or African American culture from the perspective of an Asian American or an African American? To, To be able to kind of go, oh yeah, I guess not everybody sees this thing, this moment, this event the same way I do. So one, own your inputs. Two, when you see something going on around you, do something about it. The the way Paul did with Peter, he recognized the hypocritical racism that he was walking in and he stood up and he said something about it. Racist jokes aren't funny. Stereotypical comments are not acceptable. Say something say something for the sake of the person that that maybe said it for for their own heart and their own sake, but say it for all the people around them that might be affected and hurt by it. Humanize and recognize people. Go into people's spaces that are different from your own. Go into restaurants and stores and shops that that are a stretch for your kind of normative life. Experience things that aren't normal for you. Third, use your voice both positive and what I'll say is anti-negative. So in a moment like this where a great tragedy has happened, it is good and right for us to speak up and, and just to say like, this isn't right. And, and, I, and I for one will say, this is not right. And I hear a lot of voices doing that. And it is really encouraging that so many voices would speak out about it. But it's, it's one thing to point out the, the negative It's another thing to point out in all the other times in our lives, the positive. So when you go into other people's spaces or you watch a movie from another culture, man, talk about that too. Recommend those restaurants, recommend those movies, introduce people to your friends, expand your world and expand the world for the people around you. And can I just say this? Don't do it on social media. Just do it in real life. This doesn't have to be some sort of performance or virtue signaling or something. It's just, can you just make it real in your life and you don't have to tell anybody about it on social media? You can just tell your actual friends about it. That, that's, what, that's where the real life lives. So it's one thing to say something on Facebook about all this. It's another thing to go next door to your neighbor like I did this week who is African American man and go, hey dude, this is crazy. how are you feeling? What's going on? Is there anything I can do? Is there anything I can support you with? Is there any, like, I don't even know what to say. I don't know what to do. Like, that's just real life. That is so much more powerful than doing stuff like that uh, digitally or on social media. Number four. Uh, So we said, own your inputs, uh, see something and do something, use your voice. And I would say number four, use your vote. Uh, President Barack Obama made a statement this week uh, that I thought was super helpful. It's a post that he put on Medium. Um, and one of the things he said was this about elections and voting. It's a little bit of a long quote, but I think it's worth it. He says this The elected officials who matter most in reforming police departments and the criminal justice system work at the state and local levels. It's mayors and county executives that appoint most police chiefs and negotiate collective bargaining agreements with police unions. It's district attorneys and state's attorneys that decide whether or not to investigate and ultimately charge those involved in police misconduct. Those are all elected positions. In some places, police review boards with the power to monitor police conduct are elected as well. Unfortunately, voter turnout in these local races is usually pitifully low, especially among young people, which makes no sense given the direct impact these offices have on social justice issues, not to mention the fact that who wins and who loses those seats is often determined by just a few thousand or even a few hundred votes. Now, he goes on to say like voting for president and senate and all those things it's important too but a lot of what would have direct impact on situations like these is all done at the local level and i'll, and I'll confess I never vote in state and local elections. I, I never do. And I don't, I don't even pay attention to it. And, and I, man, I was really convicted by those words that this is the way we can have direct impact. And he's right. Usually the, they win like 400 to 380. I mean, we can have a real impact on those races and, and have some, some real impact on, at, the, at the kind of daily life level uh, of our neighborhoods. Lastly, number five, we'll finish with this. Not only do we want to own our inputs, but we want to own our outputs. Um, I, I mentioned at the beginning of the message, I, I've reached out to several of my pastor friends who are African American and said to them, like, hey, you know, how can we help? Hel- you know, help me help my people. And, and they've been super helpful and very gracious. But they, they also kind of gently push back to go, but you know what, also, you guys are smart people and you can solve some of these problems as well. And so uh, there there is a sense in which in moments like these, we want to go to the black community and go, okay, we don't know what we don't know, help us help you, like we want to be helpful and we're sorry we haven't been. And we kind of put the burden on them to solve a problem they didn't cause. And so I, I want us to own not just our inputs, but I want us to own our outputs. That we would be thoughtful and strategic and creative about the ways in which we are going to move forward. And and the other piece of that is that it's right and good for us to talk about this in a moment of, of great crisis. When there's real pain, we attend to pain when there is pain. But, but oftentimes when we have an injury and we attend to it by, you know, getting a cast on a broken bone or something like that, after the cast gets pulled off, the doctor goes, okay, now we need to rehab. We need to get it stronger again so that the next time you do that thing, the bone doesn't break. And so I think it is incumbent upon us as a church to not just respond to the pain of this moment, but then go, okay how are we going to strengthen both ourselves and our communities so that when the next time this happens and come lord jesus it will happen again that we're better prepared today than we are this time to be able to respond quickly and and wisely and helpfully to our community and continue to pray that this happens less and less and less and that we act in ways that are in step with the truth of the gospel and and not in ways that reject the gospel that 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 undermine the truth of the gospel racism is a gospel issue because it cuts to the heart of every act of the gospel story in the end jesus is the answer to the problem of racism in our world, in our country, and even at the local level in our city. He is the only reconciler of people. We have to enact policies and laws that are just and reflect the kingdom of God, and remember that laws and policies will not bring about the kingdom of God. And so, in this moment, I would encourage you to feel the pain, but rightly identify its source, to know that in that moment, sin is revealing its ugly head, that Satan is destroying the image of God in so many ways and tempting us to continue to do that over and over by fighting with one another, by rioting violently, by looting, and all of this crazy extra destruction that is on top of this horrific, sinful killing of this man. Let us be voices of gospel truth, voices of true reconciliation. And not just voices, but actors of gospel truth. Actors of true reconciliation. First in our homes, then in our neighborhoods, in our cities, and then around the world. By enacting the gospel. By leaning on the power of the cross and the resurrection for our only true hope. Let's pray. Jesus, we, we need you so desperately. We need you to be the reconciler. We need you to be the one who has the power to bring about hope and renewal and reconciliation and, and one day restoration. And, and until then, we languish in the pain And in the the, the despair, at times the the helplessness that we feel as we see sin compounded on sin, institutionalized as sin, systematized and, and executed on people for generations. And the generational impact of sin is devastating. And Lord, we pray, come, Lord Jesus, and undo those generations of pain and sin and harm that have been done. Lord, we entrust ourselves, we entrust our city, we entrust these situations to you, knowing you alone have the power to save. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This teaching was recorded as part of our current sermon series at Icon Church. During our weekly gatherings, we move from the teaching into a time of response to reflect on and respond to the work of the Spirit. While we recognize it's hard to capture that in a podcast, we'd still encourage you to take a moment. Consider what the Spirit might be saying to you in response to what you heard. For more resources and details about how to join us on Sundays, visit iconchurch.org. As we say each week, Christ is all and we are His.